time. My name is Stephanie. I'm the lead pastor here at Mill City. I see a few people maybe I haven't met before. I just want to welcome you. I know it can take courage to come into a new community for the first time. So thank you for being here. We're so glad that you're here. Um, I've got one final announcement to let you guys know about. And, that, and we're excited, a little bit nervous, but mostly excited, that um, next week we're starting a 5 p.m. service here at Mill City. Ah! Okay, we're doing it. We're doing it. And um, next week is the preview, okay? Preview means working the kinks out, okay? Because having three services in one day. So just if you come, that's what we're going to be doing, working the kinks out. Please come next week to work kinks out with us. And then on the 15th, we'll be starting 5 p.m. And we're just trying to figure out, is this a way to create space for more people that have been joining our community in different ways and different spaces? And 5 p.m., being that it's in the evening, means that there's people maybe who are working on Sunday mornings. We hear about that all the time. And they could be able to still join us. People who are traveling for various reasons. And then absolutely people who are not morning people, like me. Where I just have to like take a lot of caffeine real quick to make sure that I'm whoo, ready for it. So that's what we're trying to do. We do need some more launch team members. Now I did look. We have as many people signed up for the launch team as helped us to launch this church 15 years ago. Just for the service. However, my memory is that that was very stressful. So if we could get a few more launch team members, that'd be great. You can go to the Hub. You can read about it. We'd love for you to join in and to come on, on Sunday nights to, to just help launch something new. We would love for your participation. So please check that out if you have a chance to do that. Um, I am going to start out with a confession today, and that is that I don't finish almost any book. Oopsies. Somebody's upset about it. Um, somebody... Admit it if you're somebody who doesn't really finish books either. Please, is there a couple other people? Okay, okay, okay. If it's a fiction book and it's like, there's just a lot of you over here. If it's a fiction, <laughs> if it's a fiction book and it's really good, then I'm going for it. But if it's a nonfiction book, I don't know what to tell you. Like, honestly, the second half, anyway, we won't get into it. But I also have this other thing, which is this pile of books that I haven't opened yet in my office. I call it my emotional support pile of books. Who else has one of those? Yes, we have our emotional support pile, pile of books. I will read them someday aspirationally. So that's where it's at. So, okay, one of the books that I read a few years ago, read, not all of it, some of it, is this book called Metaphors We Live By, and it's by two linguists, uh, Lakoff and Johnson. And I recommend the part of it that I read. Um, <laughs> but what they're kind of putting out there is this idea that metaphors shape our lives. And sometimes we don't even realize it because we don't remember that we're even using metaphors as often as we do to understand our world. And so they say, because we reason in terms of metaphor, the metaphors we use determine a great deal about how we live our lives. We often don't even realize how metaphors are shaping how we see the world and how we live in it. So I want to give some examples today of metaphors that I think shape our lives and how we see ourselves in our world. Okay, so tell me if you recognize these. I've got the literal picture of the metaphor up here, okay? So this is the first one, grab the bull by its horns. Who's seen this one? That's what it looks like when you literally do it. Grabbing a bull by its horns. Okay, so that's the way people think about life. Another one, this next one is pull yourself up by your bootstraps. We've heard that one. Um, most people can't stand up that way, but that's a metaphor, okay? And then the next one, diving in head first. Typically not into something tangibly, you're metaphorically, unless you were a diver. And then let's look at this next one. Life is a roller coaster. You've heard this one? Roller coaster. Buckle up. All right. And then this next one, being a cog in a wheel. Any groaners from somebody in their workplace right now? Yeah, okay. We know what that means. All right. And then finally, a leaf blown in the wind. 
These are all metaphors that we sometimes use to talk about life and how we feel about life. But let me show you something. These metaphors, if you put all of them up there, they're kind of on a continuum that psychologists call the locus of control, okay? The locus of control. So maybe you can read more about this. But the idea is that the locus of control is whether or not there's internal or external sense of where control happens in our life. Let me explain this to you. So an internal locus of control is the belief that one's actions, decisions, and efforts have a significant influence on the outcomes and events in their life. So internal, that means like if I'm going to dive in head first, I can make this happen. I can pull myself up by my bootstraps. I'm going to grab life by the horns. Do you see what I mean by how that is something that we are using images to help us talk about an internal locus of control around the world that we live in. Okay, then there's the external. This is the belief that primarily external factors, luck, fate, other people, primarily determine the outcomes and events in one's life. Okay, so that's where this idea of, well, it's a roller coaster, just buckle up, or, you know, we're being a leaf blown in the wind, or I'm just a cog in a wheel, I don't have any say around what goes on around here. And I want to suggest today that we all find ourselves on this spectrum at different times in our life. Sometimes in different circumstances, we feel that internal locus of control, and sometimes we feel external locus of control. I don't have very much control. And then everything in between. And different circumstances we face might put us in different places on the spectrum. But what psychologists notice is that we all find ourselves on any given day somewhere on the spectrum as far as how we understand the experience of the world around us. So the external locus of control would be life just happens to me and I'm just here for it. And the internal would be, I happen to life, and I'm going to have life happen the way I want it to. And this world often feels kind of out of control, doesn't it? Most of us would suggest that there's moments, if not days, if not weeks or years, where we feel like things are so out of control. So it's natural that we might be drawn to these different responses. And so today, this brings up attention and some questions that I want us to look into together. The first is, what is in our control? What actually is in our control? Where do we have agency or the ability to act when it comes to how we experience our lives and the world around us? And then, we're going to explore these questions, but I also want to mention that, you know, we live in a physical world, but there's also a spiritual realm and a spiritual reality, right? And so, we can't always see that spiritual reality, but it's very real. And so then the final question is, what impact does the spiritual realm of the world have on our day-to-day -day experience? This is what I want us to dig into together as we continue our conversation, the way of Jesus. I want us to see how Jesus invites us into a different way than what we see in these kind of extremes. Jesus invites us into a distinct way. A way that isn't grab life by the, like a bull by the horns or whatever, and a way that isn't like, well, life is a roller coaster, just buckle up. And certainly not a way of life that's pick yourself up by your bootstraps. But a distinct way that does have to do with our own participation and our willingness to join in and to take action. So what is this distinct way of Jesus that we're invited into? Here's why this question is so important. Psychologists have also found that the people that find themselves on the extremes of that spectrum are more likely, either way, to be depressed, anxious, fearful, discouraged, when people find themselves in the extremes on either side, they end up being in a place where they are discouraged and overwhelmed more often. And so if Jesus is inviting us into a specific way, I think this really matters for us in our lives. So we're going to continue in the book of Mark, where we're anchoring this conversation the way of Jesus. And we're talking about what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus in this world today, in this complex world that often feels out of control. 
How do we love God? How do we live like Jesus? And how are we led by the Spirit of Jesus in our lives? Loving God, living like Jesus, and led by the Spirit. So today we're going to be in Mark 3. We had two weeks in Mark 1, last week in Mark 2, and now we're in Mark 3. And let me just set up what's happened here before we jump into to the, the middle of chapter 3. Earlier in Mark, we read that Jesus has healed a man with leprosy. But he tells the man, don't tell anybody, which is kind of curious. And so the man doesn't do what he says. He does tell everybody. So he starts telling people because he can't help it. And news travels fast. And so the result of that, we hear in the text, is that Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in the lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. And that's what's happening when we pick up the story in Mark 3. Jesus has to withdraw from any town or city center, and he's by a lake to kind of get some space from the crowds. And then we pick up the story, I'm going to pick it up in verse 9, 3, 9. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him so he could get on the boat away from them. For he had healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God! but he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. All right, let's pause here for a moment. Have we noticed a trend that Mark, the writer, is pointing out? Jesus doesn't want people to reveal who he is. He doesn't want the spirits to reveal who he is either. Scholars use the term for this, the messianic secret. The messianic secret is what we are calling it uh, when we look at this throughout the book of Mark. Eight times, Mark shows that Jesus says, don't reveal who I am. Keep this secret. Why would Jesus want the secret to be kept about how he is healing and he is the Messiah and he's coming to this world? Why would he want that? It would be as odd then as it is today. If you're starting a movement, the idea is that you should tell everyone, right? Like get on the socials or whatever, TikToks or something. Like tell everybody about what you're doing. This is not what Jesus does. He's doing the opposite. This is curious. There's a couple reasons I think that we can see that Jesus is doing this when we really think deeply about it. On one hand, the passage that I just read explains it. The people are crowding him, right? The people were pushing forward to touch him. In verse 9, the word that's crowding, translated crowding in the NIV, could also be translated as pressing or crushing. Like they are crushing him trying to reach out and touch him. So that might be one reason that he's trying to reveal this slowly. The second reason is a deeper reason that we have seen as scholars say, I think this is why Jesus was holding back this messianic secret. Read this scholar's perspective, Grant Osborne. It's most likely because the Jews had no idea that the Messiah was going to be a suffering servant. They waited only for a conquering king. So let's just think about this for a minute. If word got out that the Messiah was here, it wouldn't be what we now know looking back, that the Messiah has come to give up his life for the world that he loves. The storyline was the Messiah was going to come and their understanding was a conquering king. So if word got out, it would be like, hey, leaders, whether it's the Jewish religious leaders or the Roman leaders, watch out because the Messiah is here and he's going to take charge and he's going to overthrow all your power. He's going to conquer you. That's what people would have assumed as the secret got out that the Messiah was here. And so we know that that's actually what Jesus ends up being accused of. He ends up being accused of being the kind of king who is going to power over and take control, and that's what they 
plan to do, to take his life. But we now know that he was not a king who wanted to power over, but a king who wanted to lay down his power to save the world. That's what we know looking back. Jesus wanted to be incognito as long as possible so that the nature of who he was as the Messiah would be revealed, not by what people thought, but by his actions, by his love, and maybe most importantly by his willingness, his action to suffer on the cross, to take the evil in the world upon himself. The way of Jesus the Messiah had to be show, not only tell, because there wasn't even words to explain it. Jesus is not the kind of leader that everyone expected or wanted, but he is the leader that they needed. And that's just so critical. Jesus is not the leader that everyone expected or wanted, but he was the leader that they desperately needed, just as he's the leader that we need now in a world that often feels out of control. Absolutely. And, and here's the thing, though. I'm just going to be honest. There's times when I want Jesus to be a different kind of leader than he is. Isn't there? But he's always the leader that we need in our lives. So there's this d- desire that Jesus has to have the secret kept but it was to no avail, right? Because the man healed of leprosy, he could not contain himself. When you've had an encounter with God, you can't hold it back. I know that from experience. You have to tell at least some people, and then the word started to spread. And then there's this interesting problem of, well, I mean, maybe problem, an interesting reality of that the demons and the evil spirits, oh, they're not confused about who Jesus is. They know right away who he is. They understand what's going on in the spiritual realm. And the spirits of darkness are trying to wreak havoc on God's kingdom. And so there is no doubt that Jesus is the son of God. And then in this story you just heard, one of the spirits speaks that out and Jesus tells him to be quiet. So in this first section, we see something that's going to be reinforced in Mark over and over again. Jesus is a new kind of king of a new kind of kingdom. Jesus is a new kind of king of a new kind of kingdom. Jesus does have dominion and power and control over all things. He, even the demons have to shut up when Jesus tells them to. They have to. They have no choice. So the first takeaway from this passage is that Jesus has supreme authority and dominion in the world. He's not going to live out that authority and dominion the way that people thought he was. But that does not mean that he doesn't have it. He absolutely has supreme authority and dominion in the world. We see it through his ability to heal people, right? And to set people free. And we see, later, we see later in Mark that he has those experiences where he tells nature to be still, right? If you look through Mark as you're reading through it, look for the be statements where Jesus just says something in a sentence like, be still, be quiet, be opened. I mean, there's a whole bunch of them. Be free. Look for those as you read. It's showing Jesus' authority. And in Mark, we see so clearly this book, this, this way that Mark is writing is pointing out the authority that Jesus has in the world, even though he's not bringing that authority the way people thought he would. So this world might have demons trying to wreak havoc, but Jesus, this is King Jesus' domain. So when he calls something out, they have to do what he says. They must obey him immediately. So I want to just give a, a seminary for everyone point. So if you're new with us, seminary for everyone is my way of saying I think what we learn in pastor school or seminary is very interesting and I, I think you'd all love it. So I'd love to bring some of that to you. So here's an important seminary for everyone takeaway. Satan, or the enemy that I often call him, has already been defeated. Not like going to be defeated, like Satan has already been defeated. You notice we, si- we sing about this, right? The enemy's been defeated. Here's the thing. He's been defeated in three stages, okay? When he, cast, when he was cast out of heaven, we see that picture in Revelation 12, 9. 
During Jesus' ministry, which you read about in the Gospels, where Jesus has authority over evil in all different ways and brokenness in the world. And then finally, on the cross, when Jesus took that brokenness upon himself and he put to death the evil through what he did and coming back to life. So here's the reality. Satan has already lost and he knows it. And so he's now motivated by one thing. Frustrated rage against the kingdom of God because he's already been defeated. So here's an illustration. I was a soccer player for a long time in my life. I'm retired now. But um, when, you know, imagine a soccer game where it's the very end of the game. There's just a few minutes left on the clock. And the winning team is up by eight goals. It's like eight to zero. Okay. There is no chance that the losing team in this short amount of time is going to get eight goals to be able to win. They know that they've lost. But imagine that team starts to play dirty, right? And they start to just trip people and injure other people, and they're making all these sort of mistakes and and causing injuries and getting into fights and just having this whole intentionally getting penalties and things like that. Um, I'm sure this has happened at some point, but this, this is the kind of thing that I imagine. And what is true when we imagine that is that these are the kinds of tantrums that the enemy is always throwing in our world, knowing that the enemy's already been defeated. But none of that rage is going to change the score in the end of that soccer game, is it? But there is still some damage that can be done in the meantime. And that's the moment that we find ourselves. The time is running out on the clock, but those losers at the end, whatever's left of them that haven't been getting the red cards or whatever, They're going to be thrown out of the league altogether. They will never be seen again. That's what scripture tells us. But in the meantime, the enemy, Jesus says, seeks to steal and kill and destroy. In John 10, Jesus says this. But here's the most important thing in the midst of this this experience, this battle that we know has already been won but still wreaks havoc. The kingdom of God is always on, on offense and the enemy is always on defense. The kingdom of God is always on offense, and the enemy is always on defense. So that brings up this tension that we have today of the way that the world feels out of control, right? And because the world sometimes feels out of control, it's tempting for us to sometimes feel like we are on defense, isn't it? That we're just trying to stand up in the battle and make it through. Even though we're Jesus followers, we can feel like we're on defense from the things that are happening in the brokenness in this world. And it doesn't mean that there's not still some damage that's done. But we have to remember that we are a part of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of God is on offense, even though that battle is still raging. The enemy has already lost. So I think this is easy for us because it's to to feel overwhelmed by this. It's easy to feel overwhelmed by this idea because it's easy to ignore the spiritual battle because we can't see it tangibly. I've been there. I often feel that way. I think there's a, it's easy for us to just kind of pretend that we're just only the things we can physically see are really what's impacting our world. But I would suggest that there's so much more going on. And it's tempting then for us, if we can't see the enemy, to decide that the enemy is then other people or other groups of people. But even Jesus here, his enemy is not humans. Even the ones that took his life, he gave his life for them too. And and it's really clear in Scripture that our enemy is not flesh and blood. It's not other people. It's the principalities and the powers that the enemy tries to use to frustrate what God is doing. They are on defense. And the kingdom of God is on offense. King Jesus is on offense. So, sure, Jesus can command the demons to shut their mouths when he wants them to. He has authority in the spiritual realm. But what does this mean for his disciples? 
It's almost like Mark anticipated that question because he continues on and he tells this next story and he puts it right here after that, uh, picking it up in verse 13. Jesus went up on a mountainside and, they, and called to him those he wanted and they came to him. He appointed the twelve that they might be with him, that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. He appointed them so that they could be with him, he could send them out to preach, and that they would have authority even over demons. And then Mark names the 12 core disciples that represent the 12 tribes of Israel, and by doing that, giving honor to the people of Israel and giving honor to the Jewish community. Jesus called them, did you see those three things? To be with him, to preach, or maybe another way to say it is just to proclaim the good news, and to have authority even over demons. So, Takeaway number two, if the first one is Jesus has supreme authority and dominion in the world, we see here and in other places in scripture, Jesus chooses to lend that authority to his disciples. He doesn't have to, but he chooses to. And we know from the rest of the story that whenever those Jesus followers called on the name of Jesus, they were able to do things that only Jesus should have been able to do. They were able to do things that only were possible because of Jesus' authority through them, not their own authority. And they still made a lot of mistakes, right? Because they're just normal humans, just like us. And the empowerment from Jesus bestowed upon them is why they're able to do more than a human could do. And why they're able to have authority in spaces that they wouldn't otherwise have that. The spiritual authority from the name of Jesus, from that point on, when Jesus is with them on that mountain, affects every aspect of their life. Every part of their ministry going forward. So in our lives, I think it can be challenging. I'll just speak for myself. It's challenging sometimes to really see that as disciples of Jesus, he gives us authority and he lends it to us. I mean, that can feel a little bit elusive. It's not our authority. That's important to remember. But Jesus' spirit is living through us. So, so let me just, I'll speak for myself, see if you resonate with this. It's almost like a daily thing for me to reframe my life from these two kind of extremes of this locus of control, right? To take my just ability to want to say, I guess I'm powerless, I have no control, or I'm going to take power in this situation, and let those things go and surrender those things. And recognize that Jesus is at the center of the locus of control in the world. And that if I turn my life towards him, I can see that it's not that life just happens to me, and it's not that I need to to muster up enough strength to determine the outcome of my life. But that the spirit of Jesus who has authority over everything and power over evil is at the center of the control of this world. So that takes time and, and intentionality to refocus that way. And it's then that I can receive authority that's not mine, that is of Jesus and in his name that I can find. So let me just give you a, an example of a story this week, okay? So one of the things that I do is I walk through my neighborhood and I just pray over the homes and the churches and the businesses and just pray that the kingdom of God would come, that the reign of God would come to those places. I don't know what that's going to mean, but I, I think that God makes the wrong things right. And when we pray with authority in the name of Jesus that the kingdom would come, it changes the dynamic of the situation. So I walked through my neighborhood and do that, and I walked through my neighborhood this week, and there was a garage sale that my neighbor Mary was having. And so I walked into the garage sale, and I'm coming through the tables, and Mary sees me, and she gets really excited, and she says, come over here, I want to introduce you to my neighbor. So I come on over, and she's like, this is Don. Pastor Stephanie, you had, wait till you hear about Don. Don, tell her what you used to do for work. He's retired now, but what did you do for work? And she's so excited. And it's interesting because Don actually looks kind of nervous or like kind of hesitant. But then he eventually says, well, I was a Minneapolis police officer for 30 years. 
And I was like, Don, wow, thank you for your service. That's incredible. I bet you could tell stories for days. That second part was a mistake to say. <laughs> and an hour later, <laughs> he proved that he could tell stories for days. And some of the stories that he told were funny, and some of them were heartbreaking and everything in between. And as he was telling the story, I realized I might be there for a while. And it's when I thought, okay, like, Holy Spirit, I'm standing in this yard with this other woman, my, my neighbor, who is also a Jesus follower, Mary. And this is, this is your space. What do you want, you know, in the name of Jesus and your authority? I just started praying for him in my mind, not out loud, in my mind. And, and whatever you want me to notice about Don and his life right now as he's going on and on <laughs> with the stories that I paved the way for. And so as he's telling these stories, uh, he actually abruptly finishes and says, I got to go. And so I'm like, well, I, I, didn't, I wasn't ready to do anything. But Mary, she just blurts out, Don, how about Pastor Stephanie prays for you? And Don says, nope. He said, listen, I've got an agreement with God. I don't mess with him and he doesn't mess with me. Again, I'd been praying, and so I hear myself say, well, Don, how about a blessing? Also a prayer, but, you know, in the moment. How about a blessing? <laughs> and he says, I mean, I'm telling you, his face, it's like it went from stone, and it just softened. And he said, I would really like that. So I'm thinking, it's the oh, okay. Um, Don, <laughs> you know, like, I wasn't prepared. This isn't what I was planning on doing. I was just walking through the garage sale. And so I just said to him, I was like, Don, I bless you in the name of Jesus that you would see that God honors you for your service to our community. And that you would just feel so overjoyed and peaceful about the rest of this time of retirement that you get to have in this neighborhood. I pray that over you in the name of Jesus. And he starts to tear up a little bit, so he starts scuttling down the alley like, bye. And I turn around, and Mary's standing there, and she just has her eyes wide, and she's just like, I've lived on this block with Don for over 50 years since we were kids. And I know, I just know that at some point he's going to let Jesus in. And I think about that experience, and I'm like, well, that was kind of just it, my whole week, kind of a small moment, really. But it was like the most powerful moment of my whole week, but not because I decided it was going to be, but because I know that that block and that, that driveway and that alley belongs to Jesus. And Mary and I have said, this is, this is Jesus' space. This is the kingdom of God. Will it come in this place? And so whatever happens is not up to us. But we have the ability to claim that authority in the name of Jesus over Don's life and that God would pursue him and that he would know he's loved and valued for what he's done and who he is, and the fact that he's made in the image of God. I look at that kind of experience and I say, well, you know, if we were to live our life, if I was to live my life recognizing that authority more often, what would be different? How would the dynamic shift? Jesus has supreme authority and dominion in the world, and Jesus chooses to lend that authority to his disciples, to us. So this chapter of Mark ends with a, a Mark sandwich. So Mark has a lot of these sandwiches in Mark. You'll find them. This one is technically called an intercalation, if you want to Google that. Um, it's basically like he's breaking up a single story with like a random st a story that kind of seems random in the middle, but it's kind of holding together one thought, okay? So look at this. Uh, I won't read the whole thing, but Jesus' family, it says, went to take charge of him because they think he's out of his mind. His family, okay? And then Mark in the middle of the sandwich, he says, the religious leaders call Jesus Satan, or Bezabel. And they say, by the power of Satan, he's driving out demons. Think about that. That doesn't make sense. But that's what they're saying. 
And then again, the end of the sandwich, Jesus' family is looking for him, again, because they want to take charge of him because he's out of his mind. Now, I think that this sandwich, what would make it hard to swallow for Jesus, is that his family and the religious leaders are the people who are supposed to understand what he's doing. Aren't they? His family who know him, who've been with him, who've seen the calling on his life, are the ones who are supposed to be able to support him, but they don't at this time. And the religious leaders have been fasting and praying for the Messiah to come, but they're so convinced of the way that's going to look that they can't get their head around what Jesus is doing. And so these leaders who are supposed to be able to be those that support him, they don't do it. And so look at this. The people who most deeply misunderstand him are the people who should have understood him. Look at the crowds, the disciples. The crowds follow him. The disciples trust him, right? And they begin to imitate him and and take that authority in his name. The demons, they fall down in fear before him because they know exactly who he is. They're not confused. But then his family, we need to get him under control because he's losing it, which is also silly because if the demons are afraid, they are not going to be getting him under control, right? And then these religious leaders, again, who have given their whole life to look for this Messiah who's coming, they think he's Satan in the flesh, but they have it completely backwards because he's actually God in the flesh. I I think about these responses from his family and the religious leaders, and I imagine that Jesus' reaction can be summed up in this emoji, right? Like, are you serious? Like, come on. But of course Jesus knew this was going to be the case. And as he's being misunderstood by those people, They're still the people he loves. They're not his enemies. And so Jesus experienced being misunderstood by those who should have supported him. And some of you know what that's like, to feel so deeply misunderstood by the people you feel should have most deeply been able to understand. Jesus knows what that's like. So Jesus has supreme authority and dominion in the world. Jesus chooses to lend that authority to his disciples. And Jesus' authority is misunderstood by those who should have understood. So I think there's these questions that we need to think about in our life. Do we recognize Jesus' supreme authority in the world? And then do we admit that there is a spiritual battle around us that makes this authority so critical for us to engage with? And then will we receive the authority in the name of Jesus to be able to live like Jesus and to be led by the Spirit? even if we are misunderstood while trying to do that. I think as humans, we're always going to vacillate between that internal and that external locus of control as we try to navigate the world. That's not going anywhere. That's just part of being a human. We're going to fall into that ditch, I think, on one side of powerlessness where we just feel like everything's beyond my control and I have no way that I can handle any, any of it myself. Or we fall into the other ditch of thinking it's we who are powerful, right? And I just need to muster up strength and resilience. But if there is something I hope you can take away today, it's this. The way of Jesus is to receive spiritual authority in his name as we navigate life in a battle that's already been won. This is the reality of this locus of control. The way of Jesus is to receive spiritual authority in his name as we navigate life in a battle that has already been won. We aren't in control. And this life is full of brokenness. Right? Jesus is more powerful than anything that the enemy can use to frustrate us, but the enemy can frustrate God's mission. The enemy can frustrate Jesus' mission, but he can't stop it. And that's because Jesus' kingdom is on offense and the enemy is on defense. So let me just talk practically for a few minutes as we close. What, what does this look like to live out the spiritual authority in our everyday life? Again, 
It can be a little bit elusive, right? It can feel kind of intangible. That's okay. Some of you maybe are a little bit skeptical. A lot of us have been there. That's okay too. But could we just open our minds and hearts? Like what is it, if this is what Jesus said is true, what does this mean for us now? This community at Mill City, one of our biggest areas of diversity is spiritual background. So talking about spiritual authority and spiritual warfare all over the place. We've all got different experiences. That's okay too. But we're looking at what Jesus is saying and what Jesus empowered his disciples to do as we're trying to be disciples. So practically, what does this look like in our life? Just because we can't see the spiritual battle doesn't mean it's not tangible or practical. And it doesn't mean it's not real. It's very real. So let's break it down. Let's talk about it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a tool. I'm going to give you some steps and then um, some stories, okay? The first step, step one, surrender our powerlessness or our power struggle. We have to see where we are at any given day and let that go and say it's not about all up to me and it's not nothing up to me. I'm going to surrender that. Step two, realize that the locus of control is the spirit of Jesus who has authority over everything and, and has victory over evil already. So we let that go, we turn towards Jesus, and then receive the authority that's not our own but found in the name of Jesus. I mean, relatively simple steps, but not always easy to do. But this is something that I will tell you I do almost every day because I have to. So on your way out, there's going to be a, a little handout you can grab. It's also on the blog, you can find that on the hub, um, called the Spiritual Authority Toolbox. Okay, and it just describes like some practices that you can take in spiritual authority. So let me just read to you what they are. Uh, declarative prayer in the name of Jesus, uh, prayers of blessing, listening prayer, listening to the voice of Jesus, inner healing prayer, physical healing prayer, priestly prayer, and prayer walking. This is a tool that's developed by Novo, which is the group that supports the uh, spiritual authority cohorts that we have here at Mill City that Stephanie Kaihai leads. So if you have not You've maybe heard us talking about the cohorts. Um, you can check that out on our equipping page. I think the, the next one starts on the 10th of October, so you still have time if you want to dig into these more. But otherwise, just grab this handout, and you can read through what does this look like in our life. These are practical things that we can do on a daily basis in the spaces that we find ourselves. We see all of these in Scripture. We see the invitation to live this out in Scripture. And so the spiritual authority cohort, um, we'll be doing the, we're talking about that in the discipleship intensive as well. But let me just tell you what some of these practices have looked like in the life of our community over the years. I could tell you stories for a long time, but I just picked a few, okay? So what has these spiritual authority practices looked like in our church? I could tell you many stories about healing that has happened in our church, both inner healing and physical healing. People aren't always healed, and they're not always healed right away, but there have been times when there has been a miraculous supernatural healing. We've experienced it. There's also times when we've prayed for people and fasted for people and they have had doctors and, and medicine that have brought them to healing and in God's world we claim all healing is God's healing. But that's in the authority, in the name of Jesus, as we pray that. Um, I've heard different experiences like this, but one family I'll speak of specifically, they had this four-year-old who was having terrible nightmares. But they felt like the nightmares were beyond kind of the normal ones. He kept talking about these monsters that were speaking to him and telling him that he needed to be afraid. And so one day while he was taking